You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Was I attached my entire self-worth on what the result would be? So if I won, that meant I was a good person. If I lost, I was a failure. When I arrived at the Priory, despite the fact that I was pretty much a toxic person that I felt at that time, you know, everything was blowing up around me. I did actually think I was a bit better than everybody else when I got there. It's embarrassing, but they told you it's a 28-day program, and I genuinely thought, well, I was a, I'm a professional cricketer, I'll get this done in seven. The number of professional sports people who are running into mental health and addiction issues is not decreasing. It is rapidly increasing rapidly increasing. Hello and welcome to this episode of Sports Content Strategy. My guest this time is Luke Sutton. He's a former professional cricketer turned agent. He's just written a book called Back From The Edge about mental health and sport. He has a very interesting tale and comes from it from a very different perspective and as an agent, former player, he's trying to ask some hard questions about sport and mental health and what high-level elite competition can do to the long-term mental health of participants. This is a bit of a diversion from the usual sports content strategy guest, but Luke is so eloquent in the way that he talks, and I thought it was a big issue, important issue to get out there, so I wanted to explore it further. You'll find links to Luke and his Activate Management group in the show notes, and if you're new to this podcast, go to mrrichardclark.com to check out all my podcasts, all my blogs. I'm a consultant in sports, digital content, social media. And of course, if you need me, you know where I am. Anyway, without further ado, let's tackle this important issue, mental health and sport, with this man. My name is Luke Sutton. I was a professional cricketer for the best part of 20 years. And then I left the game at the end of 2011. And I already had a business up and running in, within sport, but um, at that point we grew into sports management. Um, yeah, for the last eight years or so, is that right? Eight years. Yeah, we've been uh, growing that sports management side of the business. And then back in November last year, I released my autobiography, Back from the Edge, um, which details the mental health and addiction issues I had throughout my playing career, um, going into professional cricket all the way through. And then I guess importantly, my recovery, um, out of it during that eight years since I left the game. Um, and, um, and I'm really proud of it. First of all, thanks for speaking to me, Luke. I'm, um, about two thirds of the way through the book. 98p it is on uh, on Kindle, so you won't be earning too much out of that. <laughs> uh, I saw that. My mother, my mother texted me the other day about that. And I was like, Wow, but that's okay. <laughs> so yeah, yeah um, on that bomb, that's not a that's not a bombshell to start the uh, start the interview. But uh, but I mean, it, it's a you lay it all out out there in the book. You don't spare yourself at all. So I suppose my first question is, why did you write the book, and mm. did you feel you have to take that very bare and stark approach to it? Yes, the simple answer is yes. And, and it wasn't just about that sort of deep self-analysis it wasn't just about writing the book. That's about my own recovery, really. You know, I got to a point where I had to own where I was at and my own decisions and kind of stop making excuses for, for everything and, and actually look at my behavior and, and most importantly, how I was going to change my life. So 
that sort of deep self-analysis is really just me um, describing what has been required for me to, to, to come, you know, come out the other side of it in effect and, and my journey through recovery. Um, and in writing the book, do you know what? The, the, the hardest part of my journey has been that um, I'm talking about a period of, of 20 years, 25 years, and there are everybody in my life, including my mum and dad, have had passages where they've been heavily involved in certain parts of it. But very few people have been involved with all of it, even my mum and dad at times, because I, you know, I went off way traveling and playing cricket and I was in Australia whilst they were in England and different things like that. So the book was actually just this opportunity for me to lay it out and let everybody read it and get and understand it from day one to um, where we are today. And, um, and that was just a massively therapeutic experience for me. I loved it. Um, it was just, it, and it was daunting, but, but I loved it. Alcohol was your release, as it were, release the, the pressure cooker in my head was one of the quotes I remember from the book. That's, that's the way you did, you did it for alcohol. What were the early signs of that type of mechanism? Yeah, I mean, because what I try and point out in the book is that feeling of using alcohol as a release. Many, many, many people will relate to that. You know, people going to the pub at the weekend just to, after a heavy week. There's not, there's not necessarily something wrong with that. And I wouldn't want to portray it that way. It was just for me, it was an extreme. So there was an extreme build up of pressure and then an extreme release. And, and it was, you know, people would often say to me, or I would say, you know, I'm just trying to escape for a little bit. And they'd say, well, what are you trying to escape from? And I was trying to escape from me for a bit, the pressure of my own head and just switch my brain off for a bit. And so that side of it, almost as soon as I started drinking, that was part of my experience with drinking. From, from literally day one, I remember from, you know, first time I ever got drunk to, you know, my whole progression. It was never, I, didn't, I never drank like a gentleman. You know, I never kind of sipped on a glass of red wine and then called it a night. You know, it was always kind of this extremeness to it. But it just, as you often do, you just sort of fall into it and then you believe that's just your way. And then it's only until it starts to destroy you that you realize that possibly this is something you need to sort out. But is that the sportsman in you coming out, the very intensity that made you a good sportsman in a very competitive world, also transferred itself into that release yeah, exactly. Your, your strength through your weaknesses. You know, that intensity I had to training and working and not leaving a stone unturned was also a weakness for me because it would build up a pressure. I, I think I, the way I've tried to describe, and so I, the, the intensity around for a professional sportsman to be obsessed about their sport or a businessman about their business is required. I think where it became something different for me was I attached my entire self-worth on what the result would be. So if I won, that meant I was a good person. If I lost, I was a failure. It was very binary for me. There was no, there was no, you know, and I know sport, professional sportsmen struggle to see beyond um, sometimes that, but, but some do, some master the fact that there will be another day, you know, and there will be a bigger life out there and that one day there won't be any more sport contests or many, more battles on the field and that's that's good that's part of life but for that point in my life I didn't have that it was all about the result it was all about success on the field off the field in business it was just I was just a sort of high octane kind of machine pushing myself constantly constantly 
and then I'd get the release from alcohol, but none of it was sustainable. None of it was manageable. I did, I did used to think in my head, where, where is this all going? It's going to blow up at some point. But the one part that was sustainable was, and it's, I suppose this, this leads into what you were talking about, being your strengths, being your weaknesses. I was interested in this point about you considered yourself a journeyman player, but you would ace the fitness tests consistently mm. throughout. And for me, isn't that a, an imposter syndrome and in, in, insecurity? coming through in a way yeah yeah I think so I think because I I did feel like I had limited ability I I mean I I still think that now really I, I genuinely I know I played for 17 18 years but I I felt like I was just good enough to survive in it but I think what I, what I maybe that kind of imposter syndrome part of it was me going okay I need to I need to ace these parts of, of being a professional sportsman to overcome the fact that I had limited ability. And I put intense amount of pressure around that because I remember when I joined the Lancashire dressing room in 2005, it, it was genuinely a team of all-stars. You know, Freddie Flintoff, Murray, Stuart Law, Brad Hodge, Jimmy Anderson, Glenn Chow. It went on and on and on. And me. And I, that's how I felt. I was like, what on earth am I doing here? And the way I overcame it was just basically cramp, cranking up the intensity. And so, you know, being fitter than everyone else and training harder than everyone else and putting more intensity around everything was, was a way that I could have a point of difference to everyone. And you came in replacing Warren Hay, right? Who was a legend who'd been there for so long, too. He was an absolute legend, yeah. And he was also, you know, he was a homegrown Lancastrian. I wasn't. And, and underneath me was a young Lancastrian wicketkeeper called Gareth Cross. And, and actually, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but there was a big pressure around that, around the fact that, you know, you, need, you needed to be homegrown. And um, uh, th so the fact that I came in is that not, not you needed to be homegrown, but the, the, the supporters would prefer that. And if um, when I came in, suddenly there was this enormous pressure on me, like, OK, you, you're going to have to do the business here which is, happens at lots of um, different moves for, in professional sport. But for me, it just meant, right, I've got to really crank this up and I've got to survive in this. You talk about the spark for change was actually an intervention. Some of the Lancashire players and their wives, uh, Jimmy Anderson, Glenn Chappell, Mark Chilton, uh, I think you met them at King's Cross, I think it was, and there was a, an intervention that sprang from there. But that I found that interesting because was that an indication that despite your problems and the alcohol you stayed social whereas a lot mm. of people in your situation might have withdrawn you obviously mm. hadn't been that i don't know for one of a better phrase nasty drunk who'd annoyed everybody and and was mm. was isolated um in, in a way so i just found that interesting the fact that you stayed yeah. so stayed social and stayed connecting with people yeah no i i totally understand what you're saying and um yeah it was i was yeah, I, I guess I was still kind of fun, you know, in, in a in a wild way. But I, but but I I had this reputation of being a bit wild, and a, and where where everyone else would be calling it a night, I would just be moving into fifth gear, you know. And um and it was all part of the persona that I kind of lived with and and enjoyed at certain points. But it just came back to bite me. Um, but yeah, I I had a I was sociable. I had a, had a strong group of friends who. You know, without them, I wouldn't have that intervention wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't have ended up in the priory. And I'm forever grateful for them. And I'm also, I still to this day, even though it's over eight years ago, slightly horrified that they were all doing it behind my back, and I had absolutely no idea. You know, and next thing I know, uh, but I guess that's that's what good friends are. 
Tell me about Lenny and the Priory. <laughs> Lenny, it's not his real name, Lenny, so I've always got to be quite careful to check myself. Um, do you know, when I, uh, to, to give listeners a context, when I arrived at the Priory, um, despite the fact that I was pretty much a toxic person, I felt at that time, you know, everything was, pretty, was blowing up around me. I did actually think I was a bit better than everybody else when I got there. It's embarrassing, but, you know, it was a 28-day, they told you, it was a 28-day program, and I genuinely thought, well, I was a professional, I'm a professional cricketer, I'll get this done in seven. You know, normal people, 28, me, seven. I was just such an idiot. Huge ego, really low self-esteem, desperately lonely, but yet too big an ego to ask for help, you know, too, too whatever. And when I... My first day when I arrived in the Priory, I was absolutely terrified. I was like a, a um, you know, frightened little lamb. And uh, um, I walked into the um, lounge area and Lenny, this little guy, really intimidating, just bounced up to me, asked me who I was, what I was doing here. And he gave me a cuddle. I was crying my eyes out and I was terrified. I, I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know what was to happen. But he was, a, he was a, with a deep Scouse accent, and he kind of just immediately came towards me and, and just sort of recognized the pain I was in, I guess. And, and for me, that was a really big thing because he was a total stranger. He wasn't a teammate. He wasn't part of my social. I'd never met him before. And he just came towards me in quite a sort of intimidating manner in some ways, but, but to help, you know, and... Um, and that was on my first day, which was a Saturday. On the Monday when I went to my first group session, all the sessions were groups, um, Lenny was there. And we, the way it worked in the mornings was you went round the group and you'd have to basically read out your diary. Everyone had to do a diary for the day uh, that they did the night before just to sort of explain where they were at. And um, I was not required to do one because I'd just arrived and I was a kind of newbie just to listen and settle in. And Lenny went first and he was sitting directly opposite me. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, and he was, he, 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 he spoke my language. I, I'd felt so disconnected from everything in life. I felt so disconnected from who I was, what I was meant to be doing, what was good, what was bad, what was my definition of self-worth. Quite complicated things that in my head I was just battling with. And when Lenny spoke, it was the first time I heard someone speak my language and he, he spoke my pain is the best way to describe it. He talked to the loneliness of the shame. He, he was, a, he was a, a big drug lord in Liverpool running the drugs trade in Liverpool. We couldn't have been from more different backgrounds. I was this silver spoon professional cricketer. I thought I was a bit better than everyone else. And he was this sort of the earth from the streets drug lord. And, but we were the same. You know, he spoke my language and he, he spoke about um, wanting to be a better man for, for himself and his family and not being able to show weakness and being afraid and all of all of those things that I was thinking, but we were so different. And he cried and I cried with him because I just felt like he was talking for me. I, I, I know it might sound a bit grandiose, but I did. And I, it, was, it was huge for me. My first session there, I was like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what the, what's going to happen. I don't know what the solution is. But this guy across the way from me has literally just spoken my pain. And, and it's, that was just an extraordinary connection. Is that an indication of the self-absorption and the self-obsession of elite, elite athletes? I mean, you've been an elite athlete. I've, I've worked with them. But 
they're in uh, a gilded cage or they're in cotton wool or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. And for example, marginal gains tells us to be obsessed, be self-obsessed, talk mm. about that fraction of improvement, mm. and what you're talking about there, that realisation that someone from a different lifestyle can feel my pain and talk about my pain, is, a, is that an indication of the world that we put athletes in can be troublesome for them in the long term? Uh, it can. It, it definitely can. But it also indicates to me that um, that world that we're talking about, professionals, exists in other worlds. You know, I, I've had people who've, who've read my book, from business stockbrokers who've, who've really related to it. It's the same thing, you know, in Lenny's case, is the drug industry and the legal industry, but he felt the same pressures. He felt the same things that are going on, the same dynamics. And, and I think, you know, sometimes professional sports people are put in a very artificial environment for sure, but, but also they feel things a lot of other people feel, you know, and, and sometimes the mistake can go the other way where we kind of think they're superhuman and actually they're just human beings just like everyone else and, and, and someone who, you know, um, has a totally different job feels the same sort of pressure. Pressure is pressure to that person. It's not a, there's not a barometer of when it's enough or not. It's what is enough for that person. And, um, I guess the, the, the biggest thing I kind of learned from it all is in the Priory, I was in there with Lenny, lawyer, priest, prostitute, professional cricketer, housewife. There was a full range. You know, there's a, a house builder. There was just a full range. And you know what? We were all the same. We were all talking about the same things. It was just our environments were different and the way we moved in those circles was different. But the, the feelings and emotions were the same. What's been the reaction? You, you talked a little bit about this, but what's been the reaction to the book in the sporting world and from the general public? And is, is there any difference between the two? Um, it, oh, good question. I think there has been the the, the reaction has been amazing, really, really amazing. I, I guess I, I did kind of remind myself in my head: if someone thought it was rubbish, they probably wouldn't get in contact with me. But I don't, nowadays, with social media, I think someone probably would get in contact with you to tell you it was rubbish. I, I I haven't had any any anything like that. But I've just had a really overwhelmingly amazing response, and and I've had I, I probably get two or three messages a day now from people I don't know via some form of social media, or they or, or they get my email off the website and uh, just to thank me for the book and how much they related for different parts of it, and and that's utterly incredible. Um, and those sometimes are professional sports people or ex-professional sports people and sometimes aren't you know there's the range I think how the book has been received within professional sport has been good but I think I am asking troubling questions of it you know I am kind of prodding it going come on we need to do better here we need to do better here and and I think the reaction from that from some elements will be more progressive and other elements will be kind of you know here no evil See no evil, that kind of reaction. Um, because I do think in professional sport, we, we have done great, but I think there's an awful lot further for us to go. As an agent, and you're an agent to cricketers, footballers, some boxers in there and some personalities in general, um, has it helped frame conversations? Has it made you a better agent, I suppose I'm asking, hmm. in terms of the ability to um, see the whole person, not just the athlete? 
Yes, definitely. I mean, most of my clients, or if not all, knew, you know, they know I don't drink. So, and there was a bit of a, a kind of backstory behind that. The details of everything, you know, none of them were aware of it, but they knew of of um, of who I was and my backstory. And um, I think that the bit is that that has really helped now is where I have a client who you know, it has that same kind of ticking brain where they get themselves into mental traps about what might happen and what has happened and, um, you know, overthink everything and they make progress and then it's never enough and then they're back and forth in their own mind about there's no sort of kind of sense of peace or a sense of enjoying the now. Um, when I have had a couple of, or have a couple of clients who, who can get into those traps now, when I have the conversation with them around being able to step back and see what's happening there, they, because of my book and having read it, they kind of get it. They're like, oh, yeah, no, no, I know where, you, I know where you're coming from now. And, um, and that's been really, really powerful. And um, I've been an agent for eight years. So writing the book hasn't necessarily made me a better agent as such. But I think um, it's definitely added a bit of context to conversations that I've had with guys previously. Given your personality back then, had social media existed, how would it have affected you? Oh, that's very, very good. Um, I would have got wrapped up in it in a in an unhealthy manner, you know, because I was really kind of looking for outside affirmation all the time. You know, that that's how I was leading my life. I was like, I needed to be told whether I was playing well. I needed to be told whether I was a good person. Um, I didn't have any soul in me I know it might sound quite deep to a listener but it is quite deep I just I didn't have any sense of where I was at so I always had to look out to get that affirmation and social media is just it's that on steroids isn't it and I think for young athletes now that's the real danger that you know I go into a cricket dressing room after a day's play and you know what they're all sat around looking at their phones they're all on Instagram they're all in and it worries me a little bit because, you know, what if one of them is, is like me and is, has this sort of pressure cooking in their head and they're straight on Instagram or Twitter to try and find out whether they had a good game or anyone noticed that mistake they made or da 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 and it's, and it's false. You know, it's a false world. And, and social media, don't get me wrong, is brilliant and I love it and my kids are on it and I, and I enjoy it myself and it's, it's here to stay and here to be um, used brilliantly. But, the, but there comes with it, like with all things like this, some dangers. And I think for yeah, for professional sports people, if they get suckered into believing that their affirmation comes from there, or that's one of their main places, then they're going to get into trouble because it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be fair. It's never going to be exactly what they're looking for. And I fear that if I had been around, if, if social media had been around in the height of my problems, I would have been that person. Just going back to the reaction to, to the book, how did your family react to it? I know you, I think you dedicated it to your two children, but mm. obviously, as I say, you're laying it all out there. Uh, there's a, a tragic story about a, a, a former girlfriend who passed away. So how did your wife and kids, I'm not sure your kids have read it, but you, but has your mm. wife read it and, and <laughs> what did she think? So, well, I have an ex-wife now and a fiancé. So I, um, I sent the book... Uh, the first draft of the book, which isn't a million miles from what it is now, um, to them about at least six months before it was published. Because basically I went, 
through this sort of dance with the publishers where I, I kind of said, I'm not sure I want it to be published. They didn't put me under any pressure. And then, but they kind of needed an answer for me. And I was being that really annoying person. It was kind of like, oh, one more week, one more month. So uh, the decision to actually publish was, was pretty late. Um, but so it gave a long lead time for me to speak to my family about it. And, and, and you know, for everyone concerned, it, it was... Um, I guess I sent it to them all with bated breath. I just, I didn't know, you know, like to my mum and dad, I was really laying it out there. And for them to, to absorb all of that about their son is a difficult thing. You know, it's a difficult thing. We have a great relationship, but to read it and absorb it and then know it's going to go public is a difficult thing. Um, but they were absolutely amazing about it. And they have been amazing about it. And, um, and it's really, really moved forward our relationship in some ways. Um, for my ex-wife, you know, she was she was amazing. She's an amazing woman. She's an amazing mother to my children, and she was there throughout all of the diff- most difficult times. She endured it most. If anyone in the world could be angry at me, it is Jude. And um, and I sent it to her, and she, her response was positive about it. Um, and then my fiance, who who I've sort of built, born my born my soul to and, and knew everything. I, I'd write a chapter and send it, you know, and, and she'd read it and she knew it all. So it was no surprise to her. But um, I think it, it was just, it's a big book. It's a very emotional book. It's, it's a very deep book. So for anyone reading it, even someone really close to it, they're going to have that sort of experience when they read it. We all have our ups and downs. I have my up and downs. Um, and everyone says, oh, it's good to talk, it's good to talk. I am not interested in that at all, but I will write it out. I am prepared to write it out. And mm. sometimes, uh, I've done this theory where you know you write 750 words a day. That's that's the, the scientific algorithm or whatever it is. It says 750 words a day will make you feel better. Um, but I, I'm not quite sure if that's true. But what I do think is is writing, the process of writing something out crystallises what you think. And whereas I think everyone talks about talk it out, I don't think enough people think about writing it out. And so how so how did that process of writing it, because I, I presume you're not a, a, a journalist by trade or, or done anything like this before, how did the process of writing it out differ to the process of talking it out in places like the Priory? I agree, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I've always enjoyed writing, I have to say. I do I enjoy it. I, I, I've written a second book, actually, which is coming out in November. But um, I, I've really enjoy, I enjoy the art of it. But I, what you said about how it crystallizes your thoughts, 100%. Because it, even when we're talking about some of the dynamics now, even when we're talking about it, it's quite complicated. So you can end up getting yourself in a bit of a mental twist. And, and in the Priory, where you know, it's total confusion. The phrase in my head was always, where did it start and finish for me to end up here? You know, it wasn't part of my grand plan for this to happen. And, um, uh, and it's just confusion. It's just total confusion. I think the writing process means that you, you know, you set out how, how you're going to write it, what you're going to cover. And, and it just gives you that kind of structure to it. And then you, you know, you read it back and, and, it, and it, you're right, it crystallizes it in your mind. And you're like, okay, I get it. And I, I, I feel the same as you. You know, the campaigns around it's good to talk. It, you're absolutely right. It is good to talk. But I didn't talk. I, I didn't rescue myself. I didn't. I w- and would I have talked? I don't think so. Um, if I'm being brutally honest, I needed to be rescued. 
And so it is good to talk, but I think we also have to find ways in which to help people come out of it, whether if it is to encourage them to write or if it's to, you know, just to get close to them and talk to them. But I don't think it's realistic when someone is in the depths of deep depression or, you know, men, uh, sorry, in, in um, addiction issues with it, which they are carrying an enormous amount of shame for just to pop up their hand and go, you know, hey, I, I need to talk. It, it, it's very difficult for that person. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and there's cricket as well. I mean, cricket, there was a book written in the early 90s. David Frith wrote a book on cricketing suicides, which is obviously linked to mental health. And I was looking back on that, and there's a couple of stats for you here. At the time it was written, 91, English cricketers at the time were 75% more likely than the average British man to commit suicide. And in South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, it was even higher. Is there anything about cricket, perhaps we can widen it to sport, but I do think cricket, that you can see has led to that. Maybe the elongated career, you know, you might get out of it at 40, whereas at football you get out of it at 30, so your life is further down the line. Maybe I was thinking the individual nature of cricket within a team game. Yeah, I think um, I've thought I've been asked that question before and have and have contemplated it a few times. I think that I don't know the exact answer. What I would say is that Nasser Hussain once described a test match uh, as being like doing it, doing an exam for five days on the trot. Um, and and I get that I didn't play test cricket, but four day cricket, yeah, it did feel like t- it wasn't turning up and having a bit of a laugh. It felt like you, you'd be examined for for four days, and then you'd have a couple of days break, and then you do it again. And then I think you add in the, the traveling element, and you know there was a five six years ago when I was managing Jimmy Anderson, the the, the, the statistic over how many nights the England players were not in their own were not at home whether they were in England or another country, was astonishing. It was something like 250 nights out of the, the whole year they weren't at home. So the isolation side of it is um, is, is, is difficult. So I, I do think that the statistics back it up. You can't ignore that. You know, there, there must be something about cricket. Um, I think cricket's been really good at, at, at pushing people to talk about it, for sure. And there have been a lot of high-profile cases of guys struggling. Um but and I think other sports need to catch up with that. But maybe it's just that element, that intensity and longevity around cricket, so that the mix of the two, because it sounds like other sports aren't intense, that that makes it for for a really difficult environment. I'm not sure. The other aspect is the retirement part, because as I say, in cricket, you're coming out a little bit later in life than other sports, and the money in the game meant has meant often there aren't enough jobs for you to stay in cricket. And there's a, a quote from Mike Brearley on retirement I've got here. I want, to, I want to read it to illustrate my point. He said that many ex-cricketers feel they've been lured into prost- prostituting their name to fit in with the star-struck desires of others. These men lose their authenticity and that humiliation which contrasts dramatically with the excitement and success that went before can be terrible. That's a brilliant quote. I, I think that exists in other sports as well, but it's kind of playing up to that persona within cricket in order to, to earn money after cricket. 
even though it's not really you, you know, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very powerful quote. Did you ever think about leaving cricket? I mean, cricket was your life for 20 years and presumably before that as a as a youth player as well as your professional life and before that you had to be obsessive over it in order to make it your career did you try and leave it behind could you leave it behind I didn't and I couldn't no I mean I, I was having I met up with I spoke at a, a school at the last weekend and an old teammate of mine was there and we were chatting about it actually and he retired at 34 and I was 35 and we both agreed that we, to be, if we're brutally honest now, we were pretty much done at 29, 30. Um, but you just, you know, but you don't, whether you sort of, I definitely didn't have that thing within you that kind of goes, okay, it's time to move on. It's, it's been your entire, it's the, you know, it's the whole thing you're def- defined by, you know, it's all you know. Um, and of course, you know, there's a big, much bigger wide world out there, but the thought of stepping out and, not being, you know, Luke Sutton, the cricketer, feels a bit terrifying at the time. And um, uh, I, but I, looking back, I think, yeah, in my late twenties, I was, I'd, I'd peaked, and I was kind of on the way down. It's identity, isn't it? I mean, when we talk mm. about our jobs, you say, "I am a journalist. I am a cricketer. This is who I am. This is my very being. This is my my identity." And with cricket. <laughs> You know, you're on you're on some sort of pedestal. Same thing with footballers, right? You're on some sort yeah. of pedestal. Yeah, because you, go, you can't get off. Sorry, yeah, no, no, you're right. You go to a dinner party and somebody says, "Oh, what do you do for a job?" And you say, "I'm a professional cricketer." That everyone stops and goes, "Oh, blimmin' heck, that's interesting." And yet you you feel it for sure, and you are put on a pedestal. And I think, um, yeah, I genuinely nowadays when I meet new people, I try and avoid asking them what they do for as long as possible, and actually kind of ask them. You know, how are they? You know, how many kids do they have? Because that's the trap that I, I've tried to write about in the book that I fell into, that I think professional sport falls into. It's the, it's the identity. It's the definition that you are this thing and you are defined by winning and losing. You know, if you win, you're going to be a hero. If you lose, you're going to be a failure. And um, that you need that intensity around your performance, around your training. But having a broader perspective on life which we now have now, in hindsight, I think helps people when they're in sport enormously. So they don't, when someone says to them, what do you do for a job? And they say, I'm a professional footballer and the whole room stops. You know, they actually in their head go, yeah, but you know, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a job and I love it. It doesn't make me a, a better human being than the person next to me. It doesn't make me more entitled to something else. Doesn't mean that you know, and and just having that little bit, bit of perspective, I think, is really important. But society, but the media, but the way we're brought up is telling you it is making you better than everyone else, and and you were <laughs> part of that because you were saying when you go into into um, uh, the priory, I'm better than everyone else. I'm a sportsman. I can do this in a quarter of the time. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're constantly telling our kids growing up that you know. Most kids these days want to be a YouTuber or a gamer, right? But it used to be they wanted to be a footballer or a cricketer. We're telling them that's the life to go for. So hasn't society got to change its stories a little bit? Yeah, it does. Uh, in my opinion, it does. Because the important part of that of what you said, which you're absolutely right, is I walked into the Priory. In fact, I didn't walk in. I was taken into the Priory. So this success, you know, this kind of professional cricketer was walking into an acute psychiatric hospital for treatment. 
and it didn't end well. You know, it didn't end well, that kind of intensity around or definition around being a professional sportsman. We, we do feed it and we, we want to feed and build up our heroes and, and we love and that's, that's part of, um, you know, the, the sort of story behind sport all the time. But I, I, all I, whenever I talk about it and, um, and with the book, all I ask is for people to give it a thought, just have a think about it. You know, we are not the number of professional sports people who are running into mental health and addiction issues is not decreasing. It is rapidly increasing, rapidly increasing. So all I'm asking is for everybody to kind of have a think about that. You know, we're just about to go to the Tokyo 2020 Games. I'm part of that machine that, you know, I've got clients who are going who I hope win Olympic gold medals. It will be wonderful for their life and it will be wonderful for my life, my life. However, I am not also saying to them, uh, you know, creating an environment around them. When I go, if you win an Olympic gold medal, life is going to be perfect for you. You are going to be absolutely superhuman. It's not. It's not going to be that. It's going to be extraordinarily good, but life is life. And, um, and, that, and my little bit in doing that is, is, yes, I want to help produce winners, but also we need to just be careful that we're producing healthy human beings as well. Otherwise, in retirement, we are just pushing people out there and more and more are falling into mental health or addiction problems. And, and as a media and as a public, we kind of look back and go, well, I wonder whatever happened to so-and-so. Have any professional athletes come to you after the publication of the book to say, look, I'm having a bit of a problem here. What do you suggest? Yeah, yeah, from from numerous different sports. Yeah, current and ex. Um, people that really surprise me, um, who just looking... You know, the, the, the question of when is it bad enough to do something about it, I mean, that's the essence of, of like when you really reach out for help and that comes from within, you know, when someone actually something snaps them and they go, I need to change this. But I think there's the, 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 what I describe in the book, the feelings around control, intensity, um, the release side of it. I think guys have read it and really identify with it and see that pattern in them and wonder and it frightens them a little bit and wonder you know any advice to do what they can do around it yeah so you've you've become that spark for change that catalyst for change amongst others but you said it took an intervention for you just mm. throwing it forward what would have made the change without the intervention do you think uh i dread to think really um i don't think it would have been good I think I was just pushing myself off a cliff, basically, and um, I, I wouldn't have ended up in a good place. Um, I, I, I can't really take my mind there, you know, anymore to kind of go what would have happened. Um, I guess the, the question is, you know, what would I have told myself? What would I have told my 22-year-old self on the journey of it? Someone challenged me that at a speaking event just recently. It was a brilliant question. Well, what would you have said? And... And I think it's it's very difficult for me, for that person, young person to talk to yourself. You don't really have that awareness. You know, you don't have that experience. It's very important for the people around that young person to be kind of um, creating an environment in which they are, they're healthy and, and content and they've, and they've got some longevity on it. I have a client who's, who's had some really difficult um, mental health battles, who's heading to an Olympics and my emphasis around that person has got to be 
not a kind of, oh my God, are you going to be able to get to the Olympics? Because that's what this is all about. More, we need to get you well and you need to be healthy and go from there. And I think I could have probably done with someone around me during parts of my career just going, do you reckon we just, you just have a chat, you know, when you went on that kind of three-day drinking bender? Let's just let's have a chat about it rather than laugh about it and think it's kind of just one of the lads. Let's just go and chat about it. And I think, so it's very difficult to tell your younger self something. I, I guess the answer is I wish I'd had a few people around me who wouldn't laughed along with it but had actually gone, maybe that's someone's just, that Luke's just sort of crying out with a bit of pain. Yeah, I remember, I think Gaza was on, I think he might have been on Wogan, which shows how long it was ago. Um, <laughs> but he was telling a story about the fact his towels weren't straight on his bathroom rail and he mm. couldn't leave the house until they were straight. He was obsessing mm. and someone forced him to leave the house in a car and he and he forced them to go back, said because his head wasn't right. Unless the towels were straight on his rail, he wasn't happy. And look, I'm no psychologist, but I would venture that, that, that a psychologist, someone much more trained and astute than I in this particular area, might have seen, oh, hello, is that a warning sign? And, and are, you, are you more susceptible? Are you more uh, aware of warning signs, such as those little tiny things that mm. you wouldn't consider this might lead to this, but, you know, are you more more perceptive than you, than you used to be in that area? Yeah, because of my own experiences. Yeah, and, and the best one, I, that, that's a, a perfect example, but really, um, that actually really prompted me to think about writing the book was, was watching Ben Stokes, you know, banging out that guy in Bristol. And, and I watched the media reaction to it, and I watched ex-player reaction to it, and it, and it kind of horrified me at the time because – you know, there was a lot of, well, that's just the way he is, you know, he's just, a, he's a, you know, a warrior on and off the field. He need, that's just him, you know, if we didn't have that side of him, we wouldn't have this great player. I remember thinking, what a load of tripe. So we're basically saying in order for Ben Stokes to be the best player he can be, I mean, he's pretty much got to push himself to going to jail. That, that, is that what we're saying? Is, is that really the best that we can do? You know, it's like Freddie Flintoff back in the day, you know, well, it's Freddie's, that's how he needs to be. He needs to be this way. Well, in retirement, Freddie would answer that question and say, no, that's not how I wanted to be. I've cleaned my life up. I didn't want to be that person. But no one, we don't say that. We kind of roll with it. Like Gaza, that example with Gaza, you know, it would be, oh, he's just Gaza. He's a bit weird and funny and he just gets a bit obsessive about stuff and and you know what everyone is sort of saying but not saying is as long as they're playing well, there is no problem. As long as they're playing well, there is no problem. It's just the way they are. And my perception of it now is that's not true. That's not true. I, I've know, I know guys who've gone to the Olympics and have won medals and have got problems. And if they don't get, don't get sorted out soon, they are just kicking the can down the road, kicking the can around until it really blows up. As an agent now, are you prepared to effectively leave money on the table, lose money over decisions that will protect your client mental health-wise? You, know, you might be, have a row with their team or you might have to advise them to pull out of games, for example, which will affect their career. Are, are you in that frame now where you think you've got to leave money on the table to protect yourself long term? One billion percent. Yeah. One, and I'm not trying to make myself sound holier than that. I really I'm not. Uh, but one billion percent, because I just believe just because of my own experiences in life, I just I want to lead a life now which is doing the right thing. 
I'm doing the next right thing. It doesn't mean I get it right all the time, but I'm trying, you know, and that, and, and I know that if I'm managing a 21 year old who's got their life, their, their sporting life ahead of them, their life ahead of them, that's a great responsibility. It's a really great responsibility to them and their family. And I, if that involves me leaving money on the table or making decisions, which I know are right for them as a family, I wouldn't hesitate on it. I think in the long run, if someone had argued with me about that commercially, I'd say, well, look, I think in the long run it will benefit me anyway because I think I'll, I'll have better relationships with people and you know, I'll have healthier clients who will go on to achieve the best that they can. Um, but most importantly, I just, I just want to live the right life. And, and, and God, if an industry really needs it at the moment, it's being a sports agent. You know, you need, I want to be a guy who kind of makes the decisions for the right reasons. Tell me about how you grew your sports agency, because I think it was kind of cricket-focused at the start, but now Simon Mignolet, Sam Quek, Carl Frock, uh, a few others such as that. So it's expanded out. So how did it start, and how have you grown it? Yeah, it was. It started from my teammate Jimmy Anderson. Really, he was the first client. He he, we sat next to each other in the change room, and he was having trouble with his his um, management at the time. And, and we kind of discussed whether we I would take it on. And and at the time, I wasn't really sure. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, actually, I think I can do this well. I, I know the commercial world, and and I've obviously played. And I Jimmy's I'm godfather to, to one of his kids, and uh, you know I, this can work. And um, and it just expanded out from there, really. It, it, I think, you know, Jimmy's career, I managed him from almost 200 test wickets to 500 test wickets. So through that period, he was booming. So I guess if, if you're his agent, you kind of go along with it as well. And, and people come to you and, and, uh, and um, ask whether you do it. And, and it, has, it has expanded out from that. I, I was always determined that I didn't want it to just be one sport. I, d- I just, I th- just for my own... You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that, and I think there's some really good agencies out there who do, you know, specialise in one sport or one or two. But for me, I wanted that full range. You know, I've I've managed darts players, boxers, cricketers, footballers, hockey players, gymnasts. You know, it goes on and on. And I I've learned a bit from every sport. And there's things that happen in, you know, the darts world. I think you know what they could learn a bit of that in cricket. And then there's a bit that happens in cricket where I think they could learn a bit of that in boxing. And you know, it's just the kind of colour and the variety of sport. It's just the it's the greatest thing on the earth. And and I think um, being able to manage in different territories has just been it's kept me stimulated for for all this time. And where are you looking to take it in the in the future? Is it expanding out into more entertainment, or is, or I suppose you don't want to box yourself. I suppose that's what no. you just said. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't know. We'll wait and see. I think um, I just have this sort of firm belief that you know I do a good job with my clients and and roads open up. I just you know that that has always worked for me. I I, I love. Um, you know, I, I've just written a book myself, but I've always loved the book industry and I love, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a real traditionalist and, um, I love reading books and I love the feel of a book and, and that's definitely an area I'd like to do more of and kind of expand out. But I think that, you know, we've got the Tokyo games coming up this summer, which is huge for, for a part of my uh, client base and, um, and things always come out of Olympics. So we'll see, but I, I just will always hold on to the kind of, um, the definition that my management style is going to be one that, that makes the right decisions for the right reasons and doesn't doesn't overstretch itself all the time. It's you know I look, I look after people and I and I want to put the right energy into them. Apart from the boost in PR, has the book helped your agency? Have you got clients out out of it? 
I did actually. I did. I did get one immediate client who contacted me out of the blue, um, uh, which I didn't really expect. But no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not in. A, I don't particularly want to take on loads and loads of new clients, to be perfectly honest. But um, yeah, there, there was one who who had read the book and and connected with it and kind of thought, yeah, you and I, I think could work really well together, and and, and that has happened. And you've been speaking to a lot of young people. I think you went to Wellington College and a few other places like mm. that to speak. Um, what's been their reaction? Because the conversation about mental health in sport is is it's changed in the last five years. It's much more open. It's much more positive in a way. It, it used to be just seen as weakness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now yeah. it's it's very different. So are you seeing a generational shift in the way that they've reacted, having done these school talks? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I just recently spoke at Wellington College, which is obviously a huge private school, and I spoke to pupils and parents and teachers, and um, it was really interesting because you had the gener- you know, the generational thing there. The, you know, the the younger generations now they're, they're just so much more awake than we were. You know, they they they're, they're so much uh, more understanding and knowledgeable, and it, it goes beyond empathy. They're, they're just total awareness of around things like mental health issues. Um, and some of the questions I got from the pupils around addiction were, you know, I was really, really impressed. I think that the, the most interesting part of it for me uh, was to the parents because, you know, bearing in mind there's a demographic of parents who, A, have earned enough money to be able to um, get their children to that school. So they would have been very successful themselves and B, would want money's for their their worth for their pound i'm sure like everyone does i don't mean that in a bad way i mean you know in a normal way uh and might have really big ambitions for their child as well and so me going up and and talking about my experience and that we we need to to tread this fine line between motivating our kids and making helping them achieve their absolute potential and not building a world around them that says if you do this everything is going to be perfect because that doesn't exist. And sometimes that line of where we're trying to motivate borders into something that's slightly different. And then I, and then that's my warning is the kind of we need to be careful there. Has there been any interest in your book and speaking for in, in terms of corporate engagement? Because I live, mm. I grew up in, in Essex, as I, I, I've told you, and loads of people from my school went straight into the city. They were mm. the sort of burnout guys in the city, going straight from school Anyone who could do maths and talk well went into the city and I saw a lot of people 10 years later and there were some sad stories there. And mm. there's applications for your book mm. there, I would think. Has there been any interest? Yeah, there has, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of starting now this from now, for the rest of the year and um, it'll be really interesting because I do think, uh, you know, I talk about my, my experience in sport, but I, I, don't, I think it applies to almost any environment where somebody's trying to get the absolute best out of themselves. That, that's it. And my message is that I, I've got children I'm a, who I want the absolute best for. I want them to achieve what they can in life. I've got clients I want to do, but, but I also want them all to know that it, it, your mental well-being doesn't have to be exclusive of that. It doesn't mean that, yes, you have to, to get your goal, you have to ditch your mental well-being and wait until that bomb blows up. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be together. And I think in business, you know, your guys heading off into the city, it's like, we are going to absolutely smash this for 10 years. And most of them end up in the Priory. And, you know, kind of, you know, and they've blown a load of money, blown a load of marriages, uh, you know, deeply unhappy and kind of at the end of it, wondering what it was all about. 
and that have that can apply for lawyers you know actually in in any kind of walk of life and um you know you have to you have to question like what are we doing that for you know genuinely what are we living life you know we're going to get one shot at it to just sort of blow ourselves up on it it's it's a it's a a really weird thing so um yeah i mean i i I, i'll be interested to see what sort of reaction i get from the corporate talks i I think uh, I'm, i'm looking forward to them just coming back to sport how does sport have to change in this area not the clubs. I'm talking okay. the administrators and the and, and, well, well, the managers and the coaches mm. and things. Uh, well, I, I actually my focus is on the clubs. I have to say, I think you know, in cricket, for instance, a lot of the emphasis is always on the PCA or, or the union, who is a brilliant organisation. The professional cricketers, they do sorry, professional cricketers association. They do some amazing work. But for me, the the biggest challenge I would say to any club is is please don't just look at the performances. If you know if someone's playing well, then it's like, well, it can't be that bad. These are the sorts of un, maybe said or unsaid implications. It can't be that bad. That's just the way it is. You know, boys will be boys. If you play that hard on the field, he's going to need that release off the field. He likes a bet. Let him have a bet. It keeps him happy because he's still playing well. Now those attitudes. I'm sorry, they're ancient, they're prehistoric. You're just kicking the can down the road going, what we're effectively saying is as long as he's playing well for our club, that's all good. In retirement, he's on his own and it's not our issue anymore. And I think my message to the sports industry is, is we've got to do better than that. You know, in a time in which there's, there's never been more pressure on this, by the way, um, you know, Olympic funding is, is literally given out by medals. Is, there is, you know, a sport can go under because they have a bad Olympics. The pressure on it is extraordinary. So that, that it's like that dynamic, you know, amped up massively. And and so, you know, the, the, the attitude around someone going through a four-year cycle can't just be, yeah, but are they going to win us a medal? Are they going to win us a medal? Are they, because that's going to be worth millions of pounds. And in it, the whole time, as long as they're performing well to win that medal, that's all that matters. I'm sorry, we've got to do better than that. We've got to do better. We're protecting young people's lives and careers and well-beings. And so that, that's my message to the clubs and the governing bodies. You know, we've got to do more than just look at results and think that all's okay if the results are good. But just to play devil's advocate, that is sport, though. It is, it is performance-based pay in the, in the most extreme version, right? There is a winner, there is a loser, and... That's what sport's about, isn't it? And winners get rewarded more. Just to play devil's advocate, I understand your issue entirely, but it's not no. sport. Yeah, of course they do. And winners do get more. And if you win an Olympic gold medal, you, you're going to get all the, all the rewards that you deserve with it, for sure. And, the, and the, absolutely, that is sport. But if, if we, as an organization, you know, we're talking about the sports industry, are, are we really buying and going, okay, that is all that it's about. And actually, the rest of it, we don't give a about is that because if that's what we're saying then just say it but i'm not saying that i'm not saying that i i sport is about passion community uh, exercise it's part of people's lives um you know we're conditioning young people to achieve extraordinary things on the sporting field and i think a sports industry that's you know worth in the billions now billions and billions has to take time to say, yes, we want to produce winners, and that is very, very important, but let's also keep them healthy. Let's keep them healthy whilst they're playing for us and in retirement. Otherwise, we're just really prostituting them whilst they're here, and then we move on. 
And I, I don't want to be part of that. I don't, that's not the, the sports industry that I want. Um, and I think sometimes we're burying our heads in the ground, not wanting to really see that side of it. Um, and I think that should change. Just fine. Is that opportunity really possible in cricket, in county cricket? Because my team Essex win the league with nine local players. You still have in cricket, in county cricket, uh, clubs that are representative of their areas in a way you don't really get in football where you've got a transfer market. And so you've mm. got that element of it means more to represent your county. We will care for you in the longer term because you're an Essex boy, you're a Derbyshire boy, you're a Lancashire boy. And you, you talked about having a, having competition from a Lancashire wicketkeeper, young mm. Lancashire wicketkeeper, and that was important to the fans. It's still important to the fans to have their counties represented so they may be prepared to say, oh, OK, we are, we'll, we'll not perform quite so well, but if they're all our boys, we're, ha- we're happy. And that doesn't exist in other sports to the same extent. No, but, but don't get me wrong. I, I think you can have your mental well-being and produce at your absolute best. I think the two can go hand in hand. It's just it's about the support network around. It's about it's about burning that 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 kind of piece of string and going. Mm, we know it's going to run out, but we're just going to burn this young kid until they're done. Their career's done with us, or whether we're actually protecting them beyond that. I think sports like cricket, because there is a bit more of a sense of. I guess your area you're playing for, but arguably, you know, Manchester United and back in the day, they had that, you know, and they might have lost that, but they had that even from players who didn't come from Manchester. You know, Rio Ferdinand came and felt part of the fabric of the club. You know, there was that kind of sense within it um, and, and a sense of tradition and heritage and standards and values. I think that's really important. I, I think with all of it, whichever sport it is, is it, it starts at the top, you know, with the England teams, how they operate, the biggest biggest teams in, in, in cricket, how the England to- team operate, how they manage and look after their players, what are the support networks for them, and then that filters down. And then those England players return to their counties and they, they pass on the message of how they have. Um, but, I, but I don't ever, you know, so, sometimes when they hear, people hear my message, they're like, okay, so what you're saying is we just need to look after players as, as better and not drive them into the ground for victories. I'm like, no, that, that, that's, that's old thinking in my mind. We can, ha- we can absolutely motivate and push players and athletes as hard as they need to be to achieve everything we can, but we don't have to destroy them mentally in the whole process as well. We can maintain that at the same time, and I think sometimes that's the bit that just gets kind of pushed to the side, and then we wonder what happens in retirement. I think they can go hand in hand. On that message, Luke Sutton, thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.